Please take your Bibles and turn to the 20th chapter of the book of 2 Chronicles. That's 2 Chronicles, not to be confused with 2 Corinthians, which is in the New Testament. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. And there you are. That's the part of your Bible that cracks when you open it. But uh, that's a portion of the Bible that uh, Paul said was inspired, profitable for instruction. We uh, neglect it uh, at our own peril. Uh, I have a, uh, a good friend with whom I correspond from time to time who recently wrote to me that he had come to the point in his life where he rarely uses the word Christian. Uh, he himself is a, a staunch uh, believer, a man whom God has greatly used in the lives of men and women around the country. But uh, he feels the title Christian is inappropriate. He rarely uses it. Um, to some extent, I agree. I, I think that name has been associated with so many bad causes for which uh, Christians are blamed. Uh, apartheid, the uh, Ku Klux Klan, uh, the Salem witch hunts, the Inquisition, uh, the Aryan Nation. There are so many uh, Christian and quasi-Christian groups that, that uh, are anything but Christian, which claim the name. Uh, actually, the the early Christians did not uh, refer to themselves as Christians at all. They referred to the movement as the Way, or they referred to themselves as disciples of Christ, or Nazarenes, or they used other other titles. The word Christian was actually given to believers in the city of Antioch by their detractors, by uh, by unbelievers, probably because they talked so much about Christ. That's what you would expect. But it may be that the term is worn out, that uh, it connotes something to non-Christians that uh, we do not want to say. And perhaps it's just better to say that we uh, are disciples of Christ, we follow him and want to be like him. But my real pet peeve about the Christian faith is buildings. I hate to talk about buildings. Uh, until the uh, 3rd century A.D., the church did not have buildings. They met wherever they could, in open fields or uh, in other enclosures, if the weather uh, demanded it. And I, uh, whenever we get around to this topic, which we have had to face two different times since I've been here, I always flinch. I just absolutely hate to talk about buildings. And I always wonder what visitors think. You know, I'm sure that... If you're unchurched, you're not yet a Christian, you're still feeling your way, and you're here, and the preacher starts to talk about the church, you think, oh my goodness, that's just what I thought. They always talk about money and buildings. You know, the preacher's handshake. It's <laughs> and what I'd like to do is spend uh, the next 15 minutes trying to disabuse your mind of that idea, because we really do not, we don't center on buildings around here, as you can tell by looking at the building we have. Uh, I have to chuckle, when we were looking for some more money to build this auditorium, 
few years back, we uh, went to a banker, and he came out and looked at our building, and he said, well, he said, if you guys go belly up, we can always use it as a clinic. And uh, I thought, that's great. That's exactly what, uh, what we had in mind. Uh, we try to keep things simple, and we try to put our money and energy and time into people. Our goal here is to make people great in God's eyes. That's, that's what we're concerned with because people are the only eternal commodities on the face of the earth. Everything else is going to burn up someday. And God does not love buildings. Uh, he doesn't center on buildings. He loves people. But uh, buildings are uh, they're essential. We tried for a time to do without a building. We rented a facility. We met at Bishop Kelly. And those were great years. We didn't have to worry about cleaning anything up or uh, some of the other frustrations and problems that you encounter when you have to maintain a facility. But there were some real limitations, too, and it just became highly impractical for us to continue to meet there. So we had to build this building. And it served us uh, well, and now we're facing a similar problem. What do we do with the people? We can accommodate the crowd in the summertime, but uh, last uh, spring, which was is our peak period, we were running about 700 in each service, and uh, we've maxed out our children's facility. This facility serves us well. We can probably seat 800, 850 here, but then we have twice as many children in the children's facility that, than, they, that they were, than they were built to house. And we want to provide for it. We don't see that because we sit in here. But if you were to go back there or you were to talk to any of our teachers, you'd see what we're talking about. You're talking about literally, literally talking about wall-to-wall children. And it's very difficult to control, to, you know, to control, much less teach children in that environment. So uh, uh, and it's almost inevitable, we feel, we're going to have to uh, have to build. We are desperately short of parking space as you know not only is it inconvenient to park way out on uh, on maple grove it's downright dangerous we have children walking across this busy thoroughfare and we've been concerned about that for months uh, last and least in our thinking is the need for administrative space we're short of offices for the both the pastoral staff and the administrative staff we are adding staff constantly some of you may not know that we have invited Wayne Yamamoto to join our staff next fall to work with our middler group, the, what we used to call the junior high uh, group. And uh, these are all problems that we're facing. They're positive problems. Uh, nevertheless, they're problems that we've got to face into. And it just looks like we, we have to make some decisions. So the decision is, do we build or not build? Do we buy or not buy? Here's this piece of property out here that Mark uh, referred to. Do we build, do we buy that piece of property to allow for future expansion, or do we put what money we have into uh, making some changes, some minor changes in the building here so that we're better able to serve this body of believers? We really do not know. We have had <laughs> what seems to be interminable discussions on this, uh, this issue. We are divided as elders. We do not agree. Uh, we still like each other. Uh, we get along. We talk to each to each other. We love each other, but uh, we simply do not agree. And uh, we have learned over the years at times like that to simply not do anything. Just wait. Uh, you might feel some pressure from the fact that this property will not 
be on sale forever, but that's God's problem, not ours. We cannot move, and so we're going to wait. And uh, that's why we're asking for counsel. We need good counsel, godly counsel from this uh, body of believers. Now, uh, I'd like to call your attention to this chapter uh, because it, it speaks exactly to this, uh, to this issue. I call it a day in the life of Jehoshaphat, and what a day it was. Jehoshaphat uh, lived during the mid-9th century, 875 to 845 was his period of of reign. He was the fourth of the uh, kings of of Judah, the southern kingdom. Rehoboam was the first. Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat. So that uh, places him in, in history. Verse 1 of chapter 20 reads, It came about after this that the sons of Moab and the Sons of Ammon, together with some of the Munites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. And some came and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the, the sea, that is the Dead Sea, out of Syria, or some translations uh, would make that Edom, should be modern-day Jordan, just across the Jordan River from Israel. And behold, they are in Hazes and Tamar, that is, in Gedi. And Gedi is uh, on a little oasis, about 15 miles to the east of Jerusalem, just on the other side of the uh, ridge that runs up and down uh, the, uh, the country of, of Palestine. The phrase that, that ought to catch your attention immediately is the statement that came about after this. That puts us back into the preceding chapter in which we're told that Jehoshaphat took certain steps, godly steps, to return Israel to the Lord. Israel was in a period of spiritual decline under the kings that preceded him, and so he made every effort to return uh, Israel to uh, their former spiritual state. After this came this assault, and thus it will always be. Every time we start to get ourselves together, everything starts to fall apart. That's been my, uh, my experience. Murphy's Law uh, applies in all realms. Over the years, I've been collecting uh, uh, corollaries to Murphy's Law. Murphy's Law, you know, is that if anything can go wrong, it will. Uh, some of the corollaries are everything takes longer than you think. If there is a possibility of several things going wrong, the one that will cause the most damage will be the thing that will go wrong. Uh, if you perceive that there are four possible ways in which a procedure can go wrong and circumvent these, then the fifth way will promptly develop uh, every solution breeds new problems. It is impossible to make anything foolproof because fools are too ingenious. Uh, Chisholm's second law, uh, his, actually his, uh, his comment on uh, Murphy's Law is that when things are going well, something will go wrong. When things just can't get any worse, they will. And every time things appear to be going better, you have overlooked something. Erman's <laughs> uh, commentary on Murphy's Law is that things will get worse before they get better, and whoever said things would get better. Uh, well, that's life. That's the way things go. Just about the time we think that uh, life ought to take a turn for the better, it takes a turn for the worse, and that's exactly what happened at Jehoshaphat. The sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with some, some of the Munites, came to make war against him. Actually, these folks were distant, distant cousins of Israel. They were related uh, through Abraham. 
The Ammonites and the Moabites were the descendants of Lot, who was Abraham's uh, nephew, and the Munites were uh, the descendants of Esau. Nevertheless, though they were country cousins, they had uh, come to make war against against Jehoshaphat, and they were in Engedi, which, as I said, is just across the ridge from Jerusalem, and so uh, things were were uh, happening rapidly. The crisis was total. They were unprepared. They did not have an army that was capable of, of defense, uh, defending against this, uh, this horde, and Jehoshaphat was afraid. That's a natural human reaction to these, these sorts of assaults. We, we ought to be afraid. There's something wrong with us if we aren't. Our Lord does not rebuke us for our initial response of fear. His word to the apostles is not don't fear at all. It's don't keep on fearing. Don't let your heart keep on being troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And uh, this is precisely the counsel that Jehoshaphat followed. He, out of his fear, turned his attention. The Hebrew says he set his face to seek the Lord. And he proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And uh, Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. So the entire congregation, the people of God, gathered at the temple. There must have been hundreds of thousands of them at this time, mid-ninth century. They gathered around the temple, uh, brought their families, camped there, and they joined with Jehoshaphat in seeking the Lord's face. The kings of Israel in those days often led the congregation in prayer. Many of the psalms were written for the kings. They were put into the king's mouths for the purpose of leading the congregation in worship. And what follows in verses 5 through 13 is Jehoshaphat's prayer. This is one of the great prayers in the Bible, largely overlooked. You rarely hear sermons on this on this prayer, but it's profound in, 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 in its implications. Verse 5. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. That is, he had gone into the outer court. He had not intruded into the priest court. He had no right to be there, but he was standing immediately outside of the priest court, looking into the temple toward the ark, which symbolized the presence of the Lord. And he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? And are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand, so that no one can stand against you. Did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people, Israel, and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your father, forever? And they lived in it and have built you a sanctuary there for my name, saying, Should evil come upon us, the sword or judgment, or pestilence, or famine. We will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry to you in our distress, and you will hear and deliver us. The word translated deliver is the word uh, in uh, the Old Testament that normally means salvation. You will save us. And now behold the sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, that is the Edomites, the Munites, whom you did not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt. Uh, And then here you have the editor's uh, note. They turned aside from them and did not destroy them. Behold, now they are rewarding us by coming to drive us out from your uh, possession, which you have given us as an inheritance. 
O our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us, nor do we know what to do. But our eyes are on you. And all Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children. So the thing to do when we're afraid is to turn our attention to the Lord, to set our our face, to seek His. That's always in response to His call, as the psalmist puts it when the Lord says, Seek my face, your face, O Lord, will I seek. Fear is the way by which He draws our attention to Him and gets us to focus on His face. And then what we do is what Jehoshaphat, uh, Jehoshaphat did. We do what Paul counsels us to do. He girded up his loins with truth. He pulled himself together by reminding himself of what uh, what is true. First, he reminds himself of who God is. God is sovereign. He's the commander-in-chief of the nations, which includes not only the nation of Judah, but the nation of Israel to the north, and the Munites, and the the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, all of these uh, hostile uh, nations. In other words, God is minding the store. He's in control. There's no consternation. There's no confusion in heaven. God is not pacing the floor, biting his nails, wondering what to do next. He is completely in control. That's what uh, the theological concept sovereignty Im- implies. That's just a it's just a, a word, a theological word, until we understand what it means. It means that he's minding the store. That's all. There's someone there who's in control. The world is full of uncertainties and ambiguities, and it looks as though the whole place is running amok, but God is in control. That's the place we we always have to begin, reminding ourselves that God is sovereign. He rules. He's the ruler over all the nations and over our hearts, over every affair of, of our life and our family. And the second uh, step in his prayer is to remind himself of what God has done. He moves from a reminder of who God is to what God has done in the past. Uh, the particular incident that he refers to is the conquest of uh, the land of Palestine. We spent a number of weeks this, this last year talking our way through the book of Joshua and talking about that, um, that amazing uh, victory over the, over the Canaanites. Something for which there's no analogy in history. It's never happened before. That a million plus people moved out of one location to another and dispossessed an entire, uh, uh, entire population of, of, a, of a nation. And it was done without uh, proper armament or, or training or even numbers. The Canaanites vastly outnumbered the Israelites. They had wall cities. As far as we know, the Israelites had never seen a wall city before. The Egyptians did not wall their cities. We talked about the city of Gezer when we were going through Joshua, this enormous walled city uh, with walls uh, 65 feet thick, 45 feet tall, higher than that wall there. And and, uh, God sent a spirit of foolishness on the, the Gezerites and their king, and it came out into the open, tried to fight Israel in the open. And they were able to conquer that city by God's, uh, by God's grace. So that's always the second step to simply remind ourselves of what God has done in the past. Third step is to remind ourselves of what God will do. Solomon and the prophets, the other sages had promised that uh, if uh, someone stood before that temple and, 
in a, in a difficult time, in adverse circumstances, and ask for help that God would hear and he would deliver. And so uh, Joshua takes a stand on that promise. Here I am. You promise. That's the sort of thing that kids say to their fathers. You promise. You said you would deliver us. You said you would save us. You've known from uh, eternity past that this particular day would happen. It's no surprise to you. And you promise that if we stand before you and ask, you will hear and you will deliver. So he, Jehoshaphat takes his uh, stand on that, uh, that, that promise. He believes that there's no small print. God has no hidden agenda. There's no strings attached. God will hear and deliver. But the problem is that God doesn't always tell us how he's going to deliver. That's the problem. Sometimes he will deliver us from the thing that we fear. He will take away the thing that we fear. Other times he will take away the fear of the thing that, that we fear. And uh, that, was, that was the problem that Jehoshaphat and all Judah had. They did not know what to do. They were unprepared as an army, as a people. This uh, vast horde of Arabs from the east were about to descend on their land and and their city, and their temple, and they didn't know whether they ought to button the city up, or whether they ought to go out in the open and fight them, or whether they ought to appeal to the Egyptians for help. What do we do? Very often we're in the same same circumstance. Life's just full of those ambiguities and uncertainties. We don't know what to do. So they didn't do anything. All Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children. They needed a further word from God. They didn't have it. So they waited. Oh, my, is that hard to do. We don't like to wait. We want everything managed and controlled and organized. I want my day, uh, I, you know, I want it racked up long in advance so I know exactly what I have to do when I have to do it so I can think through uh, the best ways to accomplish certain things and, and I find that 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 day has a way of getting jumbled up and confused and and I'm no longer certain and we don't we don't like to live with those uncertainties but that was the set of circumstances that God had given to them they could do nothing but stand and and wait and the situation was critical these uh, people were just across the ridge and suddenly verse 14 in the midst of the assembly the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Madaniah, the Levite of the sons of Asaph. This uh, un, previous to this occasion unknown and un, unnoticed uh, prophet. And he said, listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude the battle is not yours, but God's. In other words, you're fighting a battle that's already won. This is God's battle. Don't be afraid. He's going to undertake on your behalf. And now the specific counsel that they needed tomorrow, go down against them. Now that's not uh, the kind of counsel that they probably wanted to hear. Uh, it's much safer behind their granite walls. Uh but that was the counsel that God gave. Go out in the open. Go face the thing that you fear. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. 
and you will find them at the end of the valley in front of the wilderness of Jeruel. You need not fight in this battle. Station yourself, stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites from the sons of the Kohathites and of the sons of the Korites stood up to praise the Lord of God of Israel with a very loud voice. They were all on top of things. They had the information they needed. All right, uh, uh, troops, tomorrow morning we get up and we go out to face the foe. Now we know exactly what to do. This is God's word uh, to his people. But uh, the next morning they started second-guessing themselves. Have you ever noticed how we're inclined to do that? We have a moment of resolve. We're convinced that uh, God has given us some direction. Though it seems difficult, uh, we believe that by his grace we can do it. But the next morning dread returns, and that's exactly what happened to Israel or to Judah. They rose early in the morning and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. So they left their walled city. They were out in the open where they were much more vulnerable. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, O Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Put your trust in the Lord, and you'll be established. Put your trust in the prophets, and you will succeed. You'll be successful. In other words, don't trust me, don't trust your leaders. Trust God and trust his word. Which is exactly what Paul said to the Ephesian elders. When he, he left them for the last time, never to see them again, he said, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those that are sanctified, the way to enter into your own, the way to come of age, the way to have everything that God has in mind for you is found in believing God and believing his word. So here's this, uh, you know, the, the morning, the dread returns. Here's this reminder that God is faithful. Put your trust in him. And when he had counseled with the people, he appointed those who sang to the Lord and those who praised him in holy attire as they went out before the army and said, Give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. Here's another odd way to run a, a war. They sent the choir out first, the army second, and as they went out, they went out singing Psalm 136. Uh, that phrase, give thanks to the Lord for his, his loyalty. Is everlasting is, is found numerous times in that psalm. They went out singing praise to God before the victory, thanking God for a victory that is already theirs. It reminds me again of the story of the feeding of the 5,000, our Lord thanking God as he broke the bread, that there was enough bread uh, to go around. Thinking again in terms of a victory that... Uh, that was already won. And when they began singing and praising, the Lord said, Ambushes against the sons of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so they were routed. And the sons of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, destroying themselves completely. And when they had finished with the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. And when Judah came to the lookout on the mountains, where the those that watched for invaders were stationed. They looked toward the multitude, and behold, there were corpses lying on the ground, and no one had escaped. As Hudson Taylor said, I have found there are three stages in every great work of God. First, it is impossible 
then it is difficult, and then it is done. And when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found much among them, including goods, garments, and valuable things, which they took for themselves, more than they could carry. And they were three days taking the spoil because there was so much. On the fourth day they assembled in the valley of Barakah, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore they have named that place the valley of Barakah until today. That would be in the ninth century and is still too in the 20th century. This is the uh, region just to the east of the city of Jerusalem, now known as the Kidron, Valley of the Kidron, as they call it uh, in Israel. And uh, this is the valley of Jehoshaphat in the valley of Barakah, the valley of blessing. The word Barakah in Hebrew simply means blessing or enrichment, fertility. This is what uh, uh, this... This victory is what uh, J.R.R. Tolkien describes as a catastrophe. That is a good catastrophe, where things are going irrevocably wrong, and suddenly everything is turned right. What appeared to be a terrible tragedy became a moment of uh, of triumph. They were three days taking uh, booty from this uh, from this victory. This particular victory became symbolic of the final. Victory when our Lord comes back to uh, set everything right. Joel says, In those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and will bring them into the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there. Uh, He's playing upon Jehoshaphat's name. Jehoshaphat's name means Yahweh judges. So uh, Joel describes that final victory when the Lord comes back to correct all wrong, saying he would gather all nations, bring them into the valley of Jehoshaphat, enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel. And the other prophets, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, uh, picked up that same theme, and they described this as the place of final victory when our Lord comes back to set everything right. So this particular instant, instance described for us in Second Chronicles 20 is, is emblematic of all of God's triumph. This is the way he deals. He turns the worst things that can happen to us into the best things that ever ever occurred. Now, uh, what, what can we say about this chapter in terms of our situation as, as individuals and as a church? I entitle this message, What to Do When You Don't Know What to Do. And this is uh, the chapter that tells us what to do when we don't know what to do. What, what do you do if you have an alcoholic spouse? Um, should you confront them? Should you bear with them? Should they be committed to some, uh, some institution for help? What do you do if you have a drug-abusing uh, son? Do you order them out of the house? Do you permit them to stay? Where do you go to get help? Or do you go someplace to, uh, to get help? What can we say in terms of business decisions that have to be made? Do you purchase this property or buy this commodity or sell this, uh, uh, this uh, resource? You know, we have all sorts of questions about life. Some of you have difficult marriages. You're wondering what to do. Should you stay with that person? How long should you stay with them? Is it all right to walk away from a, from a marriage that uh, has gone sour? All sorts of questions, uh, really cosmic questions that that troubles us. Uh, and to some extent, the decision to buy a piece of property or not 
seems uh, trivial in the light of the, the, some of the greater, heavier issues that you and I are facing with. Nevertheless, life is full of little questions like that and big questions. And what do you do if you don't know what to do? Well, the first thing to do out of your fear and anxiety, and worry, and dread, these things that plague us, is to set your face to seek the Lord. He knows He understands. There's no confusion, no consternation with him. He knows exactly what your circumstances are. So you set your face to seek him. Gird up the loins of your mind. Remind yourself, first of all, of who he is. He's not at at loose ends. Uh, Your world may be running amok, but he's not. He's well able to take care of you. He's well able to to take care of every circumstance, no matter how difficult it may be. I, I love that picture in the in the book of Revelation. I've referred to it many times. Where John describes the throne of God in the center of a sea of glass. And he's actually describing the condition of the sea. It is like glass. There are no waves, no ripples. There's no worry, no hurry in heaven. God has everything under control. Now that's the place to begin, to remind ourselves of our Lord's sovereignty. Though there may be ambiguities in our lives, there's none in his. The second thing we should do is rehearse in our mind what God has done, to begin to think back on the amazing things that God has done in your life, his faithfulness to you. Remember they went out singing Psalm 136 and praising God for his chesed, his loyalty, his loyal love, his faithfulness in meeting our needs. Maybe your marriage is still very difficult. Maybe you lost your business, but you didn't lose your mind. He has kept you stable. He has used you despite the difficulty to touch the lives of others. That's such a good thing to do, to remind ourselves of God's faithfulness. And we should do that with regard to this body of believers. God has, by his grace, used this congregation to touch people all over the state of of Idaho. It is his doing. That he should use the likes of us, really, is is the great mystery. came across a quotation this last week from Frederick Buchner in a book called A Room Called Remember, in which he uh, remarks on what he calls the folly of God, the foolishness of God. To choose for his work in the world a bunch of lame brains and misfits, nitpickers, stuffed shirts, odd ducks, egomaniacs, milk toasts, and closet sensualists. I love that. We're all just a bunch of thieves and crooks and liars and perverts that have been changed by the grace of God. He's called us into relationship with him and given us a new life. And given us an opportunity to, to touch the lives of others. That he has done by his grace. And I believe he will continue to do that. I think this congregation has the potential of, of, of having a, a, a deep and lasting impact. An eternal impact upon the state of Idaho. I think this will be true in, in years to come. The third thing we need to do is simply remind ourselves of the things that God said that he will do. In the words of Jehoshaphat's prayer, 
he will hear and he will deliver us. Now, here's our problem. I don't know how God's going to deliver us. I don't know how God's going to deliver you. He may give you the grace to stay with a difficult situation. He may call you out of it. All I know is that he's going to deliver us. Now, let, let me let me stop here for a moment and talk about the will of God, because I think it's a very confusing concept for many people. They don't understand what it means to be submissive to the will of God. It's one thing to pray, pray, not my will, but yours be done. It's another thing to understand how you discern the will of God. For many people, that's a difficult concept. We know that God has a design, he has a plan, how do we find it? first thing I'd like to say is that God wants you to know his will more than you want to know it. And the only people that miss the will of God are people that do not want it. So the corollary of that, of that uh, premise is that if you want the will of God, you will have it. You cannot possibly miss it, and neither will we. I'm convinced that as the elders work this thing through and as we listen to the counsel of this body of believers we will discover the will of God. I don't know how that's going to happen. There are certain things he has promised. He has promised to deliver us from fear, frustration, from anxiety. But I don't know that the time of that deliverance or the terms of his deliverance, that's unknown to me. All I know is that he will reveal his will. And that's been my experience uh, throughout all of my Christian life. I've sometimes come right down to the wire and not known what to do. But when I have to know what to do, I know. Because he's faithful. That's the assurance that we have. We will know God's will. You will know God's will. Now, the second thing I would say is that about 99% of God's will is already revealed. It's right here. We don't have to guess. Because God's will has mostly to do with personal righteousness, with character. Paul says, this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication. So there's no question about that issue. It's clearly contrary to the will of God. So that settles uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of issues when we look at our marriages and uh, we say, well, now, you know, should I stay with this person? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Maybe there needs to be a separation for a period of time so both of you can work on the relationship. But the ultimate end of that separation is reconciliation. Someone comes along who's much more wonderful than your, your husband or wife, and the temptation is to move in his or her direction because it must be God's will for you to be happy for the rest of your life. You see, we don't have to question God's will in, in those matters. It's already revealed. We know that God wants one man and one woman together for life. Well, what about uh, the problem of a, of a substance-abusing son? Should you ask him out? Should you keep him close by so you can, can help him out? Many of you have struggled with that, that particular issue. I can't tell you what decision you should make, but I know that God will let you know in the meantime. And while you're, uh, he will let you know in time, and in the meantime, I know that God wants us to be godly parents. We are not responsible for the behavior of our children. We cannot make these choices for them. They have to make them. We're so imbued with this cause and effect thing that we, uh, 
we inherited from our Greek and Roman uh, uh, counselors that we think that every cause has an effect and if I'm just a good parent then my children will turn out well. It is not true. It is simply not true. Uh, Adam walked away from uh, his father who, uh, who was perfect in his fathering. Judas walked away from our Lord, who was perfect in his friendship and his discipling and his relationship with, uh, with Judas. These young men and women will choose. We are not responsible for the choices that we are, that they make, but we are responsible for being godly parents. That's what scripture tells us. So we can focus on the will of God that's, that's already revealed. Um, what about uh, those situations where we have gotten ourselves in difficulty in our businesses and we don't know what to do and the difficulties are the result of our deceit? Should we go file for bankruptcy? Should we? What should we do? I don't know. But I know what Scripture says about deceit and then we need to go back and be honest and settle, issue, settle the issue that first led us astray because God's will is revealed in terms of those specific issues. The point I want to make again is that 99%, 90 to 99% of God's will is clearly revealed in Scripture and it has to do with the kind of people we're to be. It has nothing whatever to do with the itinerary, with the particular curriculum or course that God has for you to run. It has to do with the kind of person you're to be while you run it. So uh, that issue is settled. Well, what about the 1% or 10% of those uh, decisions uh, about which the scriptures are silent. All I can say is that God will let you know. I don't know how he will let you know. It may be through the counsel of a friend. It may be through some accidental circumstance. It may be through something you read. It may be through, uh, through some growing inner conviction that you would move, should move in a particular direction. All I know is that when you have to know, you will know. See, the problem is we don't like to live with those loose ends. We don't like to wait. We want to know now. But we need to understand that our destiny is in the Lord's hands. He has the course charted for us. He knows. And it may be his will for us to live with a great deal of uncertainty, with an agenda that's not yet filled out, and wait for God to let us know what to do. And trust is simply believing that when the time comes to make the decision, we will know. Uh, Paul said to the Ephesian elders before he left, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Now, I'm sure Paul had a, maybe he had a five-year plan and he had some idea of the kind of places where he would like to plant the gospel and he was working according to that plan and, and he had thought through um, his itinerary for the next few weeks and he thought, well, I should go back to Jerusalem. He felt that was God's, uh, go back to Jerusalem. He felt that was God's will for him. But it's very significant that he says to the elders, I don't know what's going to happen to me there. And my question is, can I live with that kind of ambiguity? Oh, it's difficult. I want to know what's going to happen to me when I get... Well, what happened is that Paul uh, uh, began to preach on the steps of the temple, was uh, taken into custody by a, a wise uh, Roman centurion who saw he was about to be pulled limb from limb. He was jailed for a while for his own protection, sent down to Caesarea, sent to Rome, had an opportunity to give witness to the uh, young men, the Roman soldiers, who were chained to him for a period of two years. 
These were the young men who eventually became the senators, legislators, kingmakers in the Roman Empire. And they carried the gospel right into the center of the empire, right to Caesar himself. So that when Paul writes the book of Philippians, he says, uh, those who are of the household of Caesar greet you. There were Christians right in Caesar's house who were the result of Paul's ministry to these fine young men to whom he was chained. But when he was in Ephesus, he said, I don't know what's going to happen to me in Jerusalem. He let God chart the course, and when the time came, he knew exactly where he was to be. No uncertainty. And at the end of his life, he can look back and say, I have finished the course. Same word that he uses in Acts 20. Don't know what the course is. I finished the course. Which leads me to believe that God's will is often better seen in retrospect than in prospect. But all I know is that when I come to these situations about which Scripture does not speak. I'm unaware of anything in the Bible that speaks directly to that issue. I can count on God to let me know. It applies it directly to our building project over the next few years or to the acquisition of this, uh, this property next, uh, next door. We do not know. But our eyes are on the Lord, and he will let us, he will let us know. Carolyn and I... In recent months, I've been taking long walks in the morning while it's cool. And our dog walks with us. She's a very well-behaved dog, not because I've trained her well. She just grew up that way. And uh, she normally trots a lot right along beside us until some enticing fragrance leads her astray or some handsome uh, young male dog comes by and she gets uh, distracted and wanders off. And uh, all I have to do is... Uh, just go. And she comes right back to our side. Um, I think that's the way the Lord deals with us. We know what we should do. Normally we can follow him. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. We just follow him. And most of the time we're walking along with him, in step with him, but there are those times we begin to wander away, and he's aware. He's aware. And he will not let us get beyond his will. If we want it, he will not permit us to lose our way. And uh, if I can say so, I think what the Lord does when we begin to wander away is that he says to us, Come on back. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now, that's our intention. That, that's our goal as the people of God, to simply follow him. I would have to say we're exactly where Jehoshaphat and, and God's people were back in the ninth, ninth century. Oh, our God, we're powerless. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And so we're standing and waiting before the Lord. He's going to let us know. I believe he's going to let us know through the counsel that we receive, through circumstances as they emerge. I don't know exactly how he's going to do it, but I know that when the time comes to know, we'll know. Let's pray. Lord, in this world of, of uncertainties, the one certainty we have is that you will not permit us to go astray. We're convinced that uh, 
You've spoken clearly in the past. You've made your, your will known through your word. We want to be faithful to know it and to follow it to the, to the extent that we're able to do so at this point in our life. We want to be faithful to you. We thank you that uh, in the end it's your faithfulness to us that really matters, your commitment to us to never leave us or forsake us or permit us to get beyond your will. And so we trust you. We pray that that would be true in our relationships with our friends, our children, our neighbors, our business associates. I ask that that would be true in terms of our vocations, our personal life, our witness, everything that we have, everything that we are. We, we want, to, we want to, to use and be used. Uh, we want to use these things and we want to be used in your hands to accomplish your purposes. So we ask that you give us wisdom in all the decisions of our life. And we ask specifically about the future course of this body of believers. Let us know what to do. Our eyes are on you. We thank you for your faithfulness, your loving kindness to us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.